would, stand with me as we turn our eyes to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 to, to 9, 14. Let's read together, or read along with me as, uh, in your hearts as I read out loud. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthy, earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place, into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. You may be seated. Brother, come. Good morning. People of God in Kansas City gathered on the Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection, the um, birth of a new man, new mankind. And I am grateful to be a part of that by the grace of God. What a wonderful uh, service so far to speak of Christ alone. Uh, uh, Brother Samuel gave me my choice for, of the five solas for the month, and I jumped all over Christ alone because why wouldn't you? And uh, we've been preaching through Hebrews in our church, and it's all about Christ alone, and of course Christ alone. And so I was very happy to say that one. Uh, it's not pushing the easy button, though. 
because to speak of the um, sufficiency, the efficacious nature of that one glorious man is a daunting task. And so that is why people of God gather every Sunday to talk about that same thing, right? It's not just once a, a year we would talk about Christ alone, but even as Psalm 118 was being read, uh, this is the Lord's doing. Christ is the Lord doing. He's doing salvation for us. And, and it's always been Christ alone since Genesis 3.15, hasn't it? It's always been about the Messiah. Uh, greetings from Lawson, Missouri. Uh, raise your hand if you know where Lawson is. Ooh, getting on the map finally. I think there's <laughs> 2,500 of us up there in Ray County. It's about 35 minutes. It's a bedroom community. Most folks who live there commute to Kansas City for jobs. Many Ford workers from Clay Como up there, and it's rough because I don't like Fords, but um, I actually just bought a, a, a Kia, of all things. That doesn't go over very well when the offering is supplied with a union money. But when, when your people love you, they give you grace. Um, never had much success with the American-made cars. But, uh, they, they're generous people. I love Lawson Baptist Church. I'm here with a big portion of my family, beautiful wife, some of the children, a brother in Christ, and so greetings. Lawson is, um, is a great church. It was great before I got there. I've been pastoring there 11 years. A church that tends to uh, raise up pastors. And I'm one of those. I'm from that congregation. Uh, Brother Jacob Gamber is associate pastor. Some of you may know him from uh, the seminary. He, he's a product of that church, and he's on staff as a pastor now, and it's a wonderful church, and it, listen, I'm being serious, no reason to, uh, to do otherwise. We are honored to be in a partnership with you guys. We're a little bit jealous of the access you have to the front lines of foreign missions right here in the city. And, and I have confessed to Brother Samuel several times and Carson that, that we have all kinds of resources in our church. And it's very hard to uh, sleep at night knowing they're not fully deployed. And you guys help us by giving us an opportunity once in a while to uh, encourage you and help with some, some outreach things uh, because uh, Christ is worth it and the nations need to know Him. And uh, praise God for you guys. We pray for you. Pray for you every Sunday morning, 8, 11, uh, Wednesday nights. We want the, the ministry to succeed. You understand? We want Christ to be glorified in the city. And you guys are right there. And so I'm, I'm very happy to see you. Do not miss the opportunity you have. You know, you don't just come to this church, right? You... You are the people of God here to preach the gospel to this community. And we, we're way over there. You're here. And it's right that we would get to help and be a support. And Brother Samuel's come out and you've helped us with some things. I, I'm very jealous of the, of the opportunity that we have to partner together. And um, yeah, it makes, me, it makes me glad, even though that's not your primary concern. I recognize that. But um, what a pleasure to be able to come here and preach the word of God to you. And especially on this topic of the of uh, of Christ alone, and so um, so let's get into this. This text is big; it's a big chunk, and I hope I I, I talk fast, and so you kind of have to stay alert. Otherwise, uh, you'll miss things, and that's fine too. There is a place to take notes. You're encouraged to do so by your pastor in your bulletin there. Um, good. Hebrews eight thirteen nine fourteen. We. We gave 8.13 there to show transition. The uh, author by the Spirit has uh, introduced to Jeremiah 31's recollection that Christ 
alone was always going to be the cause of man's salvation as the new covenant was heralded all the way back in the old covenant days. And that old covenant passing away. It's obsolete. Why? Because Christ is here. Christ has come. And so the waiting is over. Uh, the joy has arrived. And so that's the transition. And then he starts talking about the tabernacle, doesn't he, in chapter 9. Let me make some introductory comments. As Solus Christus, or Christ alone, was one of just a few foundation footers for the Reformation, it might be worth stepping back to ask, as an outsider might, what difference does it make? Are we just being theological and quibbling over sandbox issues when we talk about Christ alone or the help of man to do things? Or is this just nitpicky stuff to be talking about Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone? Are we being overly nitpicky as a kind of a, a religious sect? Ivory Tower types. Needlessly nerding out, so to speak. And the answer to that is no, not quite. In fact, not at all. The issue addressed in Christ alone is one of supreme importance. The issue regards man's very existence before God. That's not a small, quibbly, nerding out issue. The issue of Christ alone regards man's existence before Almighty God. Given that God has created all things and created man in His image to reflect and represent His glorious nature by stewarding His dominion on earth, it is clear that existing before Him is simply an unavoidable reality. No matter how the modern man might try to distract himself from the existence of God and our unavoidable existence before Him, it remains the case that no man can escape his presence with any more success than poor old Jonah had in trying to escape the presence of God. But the terms of a man's existence before God can change. And they can change by Christ and Christ alone. It is clear that all have sinned on the evidence of their own conscience bearing witness against them, on the evidence of the declaration of Scripture outright. And as Paul said in Romans 5, on the evidence of the fact that every man who lives dies. And we all die because of sin. The image-bearing man before God is cast into a kind of mutually hostile existence before God. And you really can't do anything about it. We are sinners, enemies of God, and God's just and holy wrath is against us because of our sinfulness. Because not just that we sin, but because we are sinners. You can't avoid being in His presence, and you don't want to be in His presence. You understand, we're hostile to Him. His wrath is against us. Something has to mediate and satisfy the relationship so that existence before Him cannot be consumed with mutual hostility. A man cannot change this arrangement. You cannot change the arrangement you have before God. You can't avoid having an arrangement with God either. And apart from Christ, that arrangement is dictated by the terms of sin and death because He is holy. He is just. We are saved, as we already sang this morning, from the wrath of God is satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. As Martin Luther said, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. And amen to that. Do not let that go. We are here to celebrate what Christ Jesus has done and what only Christ Jesus could have done. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it records that Jesus came preaching 
And he came preaching the gospel of God. Jesus came declaring and preaching the good news. Gospel is good news, and it was good news of God. And notice that no one shows up preaching good news if everything is already good. Jesus arrives on the scene and it's not good, and so what he preaches, and it's of God, is good news. It's relief. It's good news because it arrives when things are bad. Jesus came preaching good news because misery was prevailing, and this, as you might expect, if man standing before God was marked by hostility, which it was, and apart from Christ, actually still is. But notice also, this is the good news of God. This is God's good news message to share to man in a bad spot. God was here arranging for a new standing for man. It was His good news to bring, and we are right to understand the gospel of God to be wrapped up in what we frequently, and perhaps more frequently, call the gospel of Jesus. Good news from God for a new arrangement is the message of Jesus Christ. Solus Christus. Christ alone means man is saved from the justified wrath of God by God through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. Christ alone means that your standing before God is no longer marked by rebellion and wrath, but rather now by family love, adoption, acceptance, joy, meaning, purpose, hope, nearness. We can draw near to God. And as you read through Hebrews, you will find that's a repeated phrase of the Spirit. Draw near to Him. Draw near. You can now come near to God because Christ Jesus has come. Central message of Hebrews. Because of Jesus Christ and only because of Jesus Christ can a man confidently enjoy nearness to God. And there isn't enjoyment to be had anywhere else. Nearness is a word which entails things like total forgiveness for past hostilities. Drinking from the fountain of joy, having actual objective purpose and meaning. Knowing substantial love and acceptance. Nearness was not available to anyone. It is now available. And it cost Christ Jesus everything to give it. That new nearness is the point of this passage. And this passage uses history and God's working in the past to highlight the nearness we can now have in Jesus Christ. Let me give you some context. Hebrews 7 taught, that how, taught of how wonderful Jesus is. He is after Melchizedek. He is after the order of a timeless high priest and high king. He is a singular type priest, you understand. Chapter 5 and 6 discussed how good and necessary it is for you to grow in your understanding of these things. Chapter 3 and 4 taught us that Continuing by faith in Jesus, even when and especially when life gets hard, is the only way to really live. And why wouldn't you? Chapter 2 makes the most marvelous claim that the glory of Jesus Christ extends to us and Christ Jesus actually glorifies us. And the news is almost too good to accept, but you must accept it. It is the intention of God. He is, as chapter 1 began, the final authoritative and effective work of God who created all things. So life means life with God, drawing near to God, and Jesus is the only way to have it. The arrangement we have for nearness to God in Christ Jesus is necessary and provided. 
When I use the word arrangement, I'm speaking of a word that helps to understand covenant. In the old covenant, there was an arrangement. In the new covenant, there's an arrangement. Jesus Christ is that arrangement. We read in chapter 8 that in fact it is through Jesus that we are transformed. We're made to be a new man, a better man. A man near to God. And in Christ, we have an eternal priest doing a more excellent work for a better man before the only glorious God of all. And none of this has ever been available to anyone until Christ came. In Christ Jesus, we have a superior arrangement from God for being with God. Without Christ, God is just unapproachable. The fountain of all that is good is unapproachable. Eternal gladness is unavailable. Objective meaning and purpose is beyond us. Insanity reigns, you understand. Apart from Christ, there is no purpose. Despite how we might try to distract ourselves with cell phones and whatnot from the reality of that fact. But now that Christ has come, we can be near to God. The point of our passage is that the tabernacle teaches us that fellowship with God must come from Christ Jesus. The point of the tabernacle is to teach us in this passage that the point of it was to produce, would produce within you the evidence you need to believe that Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus is the arrangement you need for nearness to God. And so I want us to honestly grasp the situation Hebrews 9 is pointing out through three, four points that we can track through. We're going to grasp the situation Hebrews 9 is pointing out. And the first first thing to grasp is, from verses 1 to 8, that there is an unavailable fellowship situation. God is unavailable. You cannot get near Him. We must grasp it as, as the truth. Tabernacle teaches us this. There is this unavailable fellowship with God. Through Moses, God set a temporary arrangement for relation to Himself, for fellowship with Him. But you can't really call it nearness as you walk through this passage. This arrangement from God included two things. We see in verse 1 those two things mentioned. It had regulation for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For for there to be nearness to God, relation to God, God provided things. He provided regulation for worship and a place, an earthly place for holiness. Well, let's regard that. Let's think of the first one, the regulation ordinance for worship that God provided to make the point about nearness to him through Jesus. The word for worship there in verse one is often translated service to God. It's the same word used down in verse six to describe the ritual duties that the priest would perform. In other words, fellowship or nearness with God required God ordained activity. And it still does, by the way. You can't just do whatever you think you ought to do to waltz into the presence of God and have nearness to Him. We are excluded from God's glorious presence by our own contrived efforts. Because apart from Christ, we, we can make no good effort. We are sinners. You may recall, if you're a student of Scripture, Leviticus 10 tells of how Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the high priest, they put fire in a censer. They did very religious things. They laid incense on it, they offered it to God, and it was unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. We're going to draw near to God. We can contrive ways in which we think we'll look religious, appear religious, and be acceptable. 
And verse 2 of that passage says, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Well, death is pretty much the end of nearness to God. Death is the opposite of fellowship with the I am who is life. Nearness will not be attained by man's contrived efforts, no matter how religious and dignified they appear to be. Hebrews 9.1 says that the first covenant had regulations for worship. These were commanded by God and commanded in part to show the perfection and sufficiency of Jesus, who offering Himself was not only not consumed by death, but God raised Him up from death. You don't get to dictate the terms of how you will be in fellowship and worship in nearness to God. And I think about this quite often because... I'm pastoring this church. I'm out there. And when I started pastoring the church, it was the first church I'd pastored. I'd been involved in church all my life. And, I, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. And this was a great church. It was, so, it was a great church. I was a member of it. I did not put my application in when our previous pastor left because I wanted the church to have a good pastor. And I didn't know what I was doing. And still to this day, even with the assistance of other elders and deacons and whatnot, I'm a little nervous to know what are we supposed to do. I heard you guys doing a corporate confession from Baptist Faith and Message. I, I was excited to see that because we do that. What's prescribed? What's right? You can't just waltz and do whatever you want to do to have nearness to God. And, and you know, we're not trying to contrive religion. So let me say this. You may feel that way too. You're not out there. You're actually in it. Surrounded by a world very close that has no regard, I would imagine, for God and desiring to know what He would want. There's clearly, according to the New Testament, much freedom for worship and how we are to approach God. We don't have a priestly class. There are no obligatory blood sacrifices, no obligatory incense, no pilgrim feast days. But none of that freedom means that approach to God or fellowship with God is somehow less significant or relieved, you understand. It is a testimony to the fact that we confess Christ Jesus has done all that needs to be done for us to draw near to God. What we do now when we gather is we just respond with thanksgiving and praise. And we look at the Word, which is an account of Christ Jesus Himself, and say, He did that for us. He did that for us. He would have us to do that in our life. So things are very different than they were in the Old Covenant, are they not? Where there, they're trying to follow regulations so they could draw near to God. Christ Jesus has already brought us near to God. And now we just exist in praise and thanksgiving. So so long as we focus on the Word, which is incarnate and the Word of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be fine. Tendency is to get extra biblical, isn't it? And say, well, we can't do this and we can't do that. But, and there's a freedom to draw near to God now because Christ Jesus has come. And I, I take lots of confidence in that. We pray in Jesus' name. We tell the truth about God. We exult in the truth of God's words preached because it extols the virtues of Jesus Christ. And all we need is a space that's not too distracting so we can gather and do that. Bam, the body of Christ gathering to do what they can do. God arranged 
as we take grasp of the situation, that fellowship or nearness with Him included certain regulations for worship. Verse 1. It also included an earthly place of holiness. God had provided that. Why is that? Well, I think it's because God does not exist in the abstract and neither do we. A place of holiness was provided so that real fellowship, communion, nearness with God could exist. God is not an experiment in the capacity of your imagination any more than the troubles and death you face are merely imagined. He is real. You are real. Fellowship is real. And verses 2 to 5 describes the earthly place of holiness in the old covenant arrangement that is now obsolete. We recall Exodus, which records the event of all these things. God had redeemed His people by many miraculous and terrifying acts of power from slavery in Egypt. He delivered them to the mountain and He gifts them the terms of the covenant. Here's the terms of nearness to me. Here I am, here's the law. You will obey so that I will be yours and you will be mine. And the sight on that mountain was so terrifying. God's glory so striking and powerful that the people stood far off pleading to Moses... You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let us speak to God lest we die. He is so holy, so overwhelmingly powerful and glorious that merely drawing near to His presence exposes you to justice, which you know would be the death of yourself. And then Exodus records that God gives some laws about slaves, some laws about who will constitute the people, some basic social laws, Sabbath and feast laws. And it's pretty clear that the people are just not going to be able to work this out and draw near to this all-consuming fire who is God. And yet in His grace, because He knows, God knows the plan He has in Christ Jesus, He promises the promised land. He gives them instruction for the tabernacle, the place of holiness. He gives instruction to Moses and says, See that you make this after the pattern being shown you on the mountain. You're smart to stand far off, but I want to signal my grace to be in fellowship with you. And for that, we'll need a place of holiness, a real signal of my presence, and how you can approach my glory. And verses 2 to 5 here in chapter 9 of Hebrews describes what was made after the pattern of what Moses was shown. And as you read through this and think through this, and as I exposit this, from a fellowship or nearness point of view, it all seems a bit disappointing to anyone who has ever had Jesus. Remember, man is separated from God. The problem needs to be solved for nearness. That's where the life and meaning and joy is. And if the tabernacle and ordinances is provided for nearness and fellowship, it's a little bit disappointing. Let's talk talk about what was prepared, this place prepared. Verse 2, a place was prepared, a tabernacle, a very temporary place. And Exodus 25, 8 says, Let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, that I may dwell in their midst. It signaled that God would be among His people here, and now He would be among them over here. It was mobile, but it was small. It had sections, according to verses 2 and 3 here. A holy place separated by a curtain to the most holy place. The holy place was 15 feet by 30 feet. The most holy place was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. That's not very big. You could get a few of those in here. We also know from the Pentateuch that there was an enclosed courtyard outside the holy place, 150 feet by 75 feet. Five of those would fit on a football field. 
it's not very big. It's temporary by construction. And not everyone could go anywhere. Verse 6 says, The priest would go regularly into the first section, the holy place, separated from the most holy place by a curtain. And you know how we are. We're like children. We want to go all the way in. If you tell me I can't go over there, then I figure it's better than what I've got over here. And in this case, it is true. And nobody gets to go. Except the one guy covered with the blood, the incense wafting before him, and then only just once a year. Numbers 151 teaches that only the Levites could approach the tabernacle proper. And then only when it was time to move it, quote, anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death. The problem is distance from God. The solution needs to be access to God for nearness to God. And if the tabernacle is the answer, it's not a very good one. The ordinances, those laws, those priestly class is just not going to cut it, is it? Never did. Only the high priest and only on one day of the year could enter the most holy place, verse 7. And we confess it is exceedingly gracious of God to provide a place of holiness on earth. But the lesson here is this. None of us could really enjoy closeness, nearness to God in this arrangement. God is surely in an unapproachable light, shrouded from everyone by veils, blood, incense, and not a small amount of righteous fear. This place for nearness was prepared. Items were prepared. Verse 2 mentions the lampstand, the table, the bread of presence. There was also an altar of incense before the most holy place, curtain, verse 4. The lampstand, the bread table, signals fellowship. Light as flickering as it might have been, and food at a table. Every Sabbath, the priest would put 12 cakes of fresh bread on the table, representing the 12 tribes who were not in the holy place, but far away. Perhaps cramming into the 150 square foot or whatever it was, courtyard. Verses 4 to 5 describe what is in the most holy place. You know, what's actually in the place where you could be near to God. Verse 8, hear the lesson of the tabernacle. And hear it as the testimony of the Holy Spirit. God is real. His Shekinah glory was actually in that holy place. His presence, power, wisdom, and forgiveness are real. But you can't really draw near to His devastating glory. You can't really enjoy the glory of His presence. You can't really have love-soaked table fellowship with Him in this old arrangement. You were on the grounds of the king's palace as he dined inside and maybe you would see a soft glow from the window. But that doesn't sound like nearness to me. Why would anybody want to go back to the rules, the regulations and priesthood? There was unavailable nearness, a real distance. There was also the unclean person. Verses 9 to 10. The unapproachable glory of God is one side of the coin of nearness to God, but it's not the problem side. Things were fine in the Garden of Eden until Adam sinned, and though God covered the shame of their nakedness with a sacrifice of the skin of some animal, they were still barred from the Garden. They still knew themselves to be sinners. 
And verses 9 to 10 gets us thinking rightly about the problem of fellowship with God, the need for our perfection. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So even if you were allowed to come into that Shekinah glory presence of God, you wouldn't feel good about being in there. You're in the presence of someone you have mocked. And where's the nearness and fellowship going to be there? In the old covenant arrangement for nearness to God, with all of its religious and God-ordained ritual, Adam's guilt removed was imperfect, incomplete, and so was the guilt one has at the level of conscience for everyone who would bring sacrifices for the priest to offer. It was all a parable to explain the work of Christ on the cross begging for a new arrangement. Hebrews 9.9 translates symbolic from the Greek parable. The tabernacle arrangement is meant to teach about the real and better arrangement that God has provided in Christ Jesus and Christ alone. And you and I know this. A person is more than their skin, aren't they? A person is more than you see on the outside, and it's always good to remember that. The high priest covered in the blood of the bull, slain for his own sin, and the goat slain for the sins of the people, masked in a veil of properly burning incense, would enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and how clear could his own conscience truly be on that day? I have never, in 11 years of preaching, felt like I was absolutely qualified to take the lectern and preach the Bible to the people of God. No matter how much repentance and sin recognition and repentance I might do during the week and in preparation to preach, I have never felt like I should be here. How can any high priest, having drenched himself in the blood of prescribed ordinance, have felt like he was supposed to be in that presence? You've got to take yourself in, don't you? Did he feel himself acceptable? Did he feel safe? Every person has hidden thoughts, hidden wants, hidden feelings. Your body and soul. There's a constant trial going on in the courtroom of your conscience. Romans 2.15 says that the work of the law is written on the heart. Conscience bearing witness. Conflicting thoughts accusing or excusing. And we know there's a day of judgment. We know what we've done. We know how hard it is for us to forgive others who've done infinitely less than we have done in our constant image-bearing mockery of God. So, a big solution needs to be provided for nearness to God. Not only for you to have legal access, but for you to actually want to be there. When do you stop feeling guilty for something you've done or failed to do for someone else? This is a stupid story, but I'm going to tell it. My wife and I met at uh, Southwest Missouri State. It was called Missouri State University at the time. You could send the $10 and get a change on your documents, but who cares? And uh, we met at the Baptist Student Union down there. And I used to play penny and number pool with the guys in the basement. You're playing eight ball. And if I sink the eight, you owe me eight pennies. And I was up like a buck 65 on this guy. <laughs> There's a lot of money back then. He'd get some mom and, and... And he didn't have it. He did not have it. I was like, you got paid, man. 
He didn't have it. So stupid. But it bothered me. He lied. And I let it go, but you know, he couldn't really then let it go because he wanted to avoid me because he knows he lied. It just, nearness can be broken so easily between image bearers. And we are made to bear the image of God and every sin is a mockery of Him. Every sin we commit is a lie about Him. And it's all the time. And that was just one incident of no, owing me a buck sixty-five. A major solution needs to be provided for nearness to God. Not just because He's so glorious and holy and consuming, but because we know we don't deserve to be there. We see here in verse 9 that perfection, completion of the image bearer of God, a complete work of representation of God in us is necessary if we are to worship, to serve Him admirably and joyfully, if we're to be near Him. It's got to happen. So that's the situation. There was unavailable fellowship. There was the unclean man. And we all raise our hand and say, I'm the man. And then verses 11-12, there was the unrepeatable offering. The unrepeatable offering. Verse 11 begins with one of those glorious conjunctions, so we'll have it in our sermon. Fellowship with the Most Holy God is just unavailable. Our uncleanliness before God is just an insurmountable problem. But when Christ appeared, everything changed. It's the, these big butts in Scripture just Change everything. They're in Romans. They're in Peter. There's this disastrous, unsolvable situation, but then Christ appeared. Listen to these words by Isaac Watts. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than that. Incomparably richer. Incomparably richer. We thank God for the tabernacle erected so that we could now rightly comprehend the nearness we can now have in the better priest and better sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11 mentions the term high priest. In Christ, the high priest has now found its shadow-casting meaning. Perhaps the Jews of Judea in Jesus' day wanted nothing more than Rome conquered. But that's something a horde of Visigoths could do. Jesus can remove the Roman in us. Rome is not really a man's problem. The culture today is a pain in the neck. But it's not really our problem. Our problem is thinking in a brief moment of insanity that we could do something appreciable to draw near to God. Jesus appeared as a high priest because in His grace God gives us what we need, Himself, fellowship with Him. There was unavailable nearness, unclean person, but then the unrepeatable offering was given. Jesus Christ. We declare Jesus Christ was given for us. 
And apart from that, there is no nearness to God. This offering of Jesus given is permanently accepted. We see this in verse 11 and 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his, this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Why is it, Jesse, you think you can go preach the gospel? Because I can read. And because I believe what it says about Christ having accomplished all that's necessary for us to draw near to God. And because I believe that Jesus Christ Himself is an acceptable offering, efficacious forever, permanently accepted. Your eternal fellowship and joy with God is established permanently. I mean, nothing can snatch us from His hands at this point. Revelation 19.9 says, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God has by His grace seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As if it's already happened. Because He's permanently there. Permanently effective. The way is already open for us now. In this time of reformation when the new man is born in Christ Jesus. There was the unrepeatable offering given. The offering was Permanently accepted. And he was perfectly capable. And that crucified Nazarene can do it, can't he? And that's the paradox of it all, isn't it? Who is this guy? What can come from Nazareth? The one hanging out with sinners. The one who smells like fish. Perfectly capable. Verses 13 and 14 contrast the capacity of Christ Jesus to all other offerings presented. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify or make holy for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? How much more? Well, more by a satisfactory amount. Perfectly capable. The blood of Christ makes pure the conscience. You know, finally, we have someone to think about other than ourselves. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy. Who am I to speak of Christ Jesus? Christ Jesus is so glorious, isn't He? Let's just start talking about Him and thinking about Him and less of ourselves. He's perfectly capable. He's permanently accepted. The blood of Christ makes pure the conscience. I will say that it doesn't mute you to the courtroom scene in your own head. You and I might still struggle to forgive ourselves from time to time. If I'm being honest. But it does shout innocent as a final gavel falling over that conversation. Yes? Nevertheless, however, you need to train yourself to say these things, church. I did this, I did the thing. Nevertheless, and however, that gavel has already fallen on my behalf because Christ is perfectly capable and acceptable. I just noticed that the Trinity is in view here in verse 14. This nearness, access to God is a fully divine provision. The Father's holiness and righteousness sets the terms of peace. 
I mean, we're not the ones that make the rules, right? His perfection and holiness is the burning fire. It sets the terms of peace. It demands perfection. But the Son is Christ, the promised Messiah of God. And as we know very clearly from Bethlehem, Jesus was conceived of the Spirit of God, not a work of man. Jesus offered Himself without blemish through the eternal Spirit, conceived of the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. The judge is the offended party, and the judge has provided His Son and has welcomed Him on your behalf. And all of this is the testimony of the Spirit of God. Is God capable of establishing our fellowship with Him? He raised the cursed man on the tree from the dead. Yes, He's capable. It is no gamble to believe He can raise us to and bring us to Himself. So we're clear regarding reality. We know sin excludes from nearness to God. That's been pretty clear for a long time. That's very clear in looking at the tabernacle. But Christ appeared. However, however Christ appeared. Here was the unrepeatable offering, permanently accepted and perfectly capable. And gives us finally an unimaginable opportunity in verse 14. He purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We were dead men walking, doing dead works, and now we get to serve the living God. Everything changes since Christ has come. Our men's group on Tuesday night has been studying the benefits of sound logic, rational arguments, trying to develop a curriculum to teach our youth so that they can have spines and know the truth and love the truth and see how rational the faith is. And it's been kind of fun to consider all the ways that man thinks wrongly and argues foolishly and logical fallacies, red herrings, straw man, hasty generalizations. And once you start thinking about these things, you kind of see them everywhere. And one of the possible logical fallacies called the either-or fallacy or presenting a person with a false dilemma or a fake, false dichotomy. And that happens when you're presented with only two extreme options as if there are only two. Like Patrick Henry sh- shouting, give me liberty or give me death. Some bystander might say, could we not also or ride south to Mexico and just avoid the whole thing? There maybe is a third option. No, it's liberty or death. But verse 14 speaks in extremes in church. It is not a false dilemma. There are works unto death, and they're serving the living God. Sprung from Egyptian slavery, God presented no third way for His people. There was not a third group that offered the opportunity to just wander off in a different direction and serve their own gods. It was live or die. With me or die here. And I call, serve the living God in verse 14, the unimaginable opportunity gifted to us in Christ Jesus. Because in our previously darkened thinking, we could never imagine Him being so gracious to give us life, and we would never have wanted Him to. Sinners love the darkness and the works of darkness that feed the lust of the body. And Jesus calls us to the light, and there is a sure line between the light and the shadow. No man really lives there because it isn't a real space. Jesus said it bluntly in Matthew 12, 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's Christ alone as it gets. 
There is no leave me alone and I'll leave you alone arrangement from God. And you church people just won't stop talking about the Scriptures and salvation and Jesus Christ. Because there is no third way. We're all Jesus freaks or we're all dying. In Christ we are free to serve with gladness, with purpose, with promise. There is nothing more significant we could be doing than gathering on the Lord's Day to proclaim His glory. That's it, man. That's the purpose. People are just longing for meaning and purpose. And it's right on the street corner begging for them to come and see Jesus. It is an unimaginably good gift of God that we, sinners as we are, should get to serve the living God. It is a marvelous privilege, for example, to get to be here and break this bread with you. We will serve God gladly. We will enjoy fellowship with Him by the Spirit. And then one day, very soon, He will raise us up and we will feast at His table the feast of total victory and joy forever. And it's all been gifted to us. Isn't it marvelous? It's hard to accept, isn't it? Surely I can contribute something. It's Christ alone. It's always been Christ alone. It's hard to get near to God, right? It's hard, you know, like unaided flight and staving off death and getting a camel through the eye of a needle. And you would think, having just been sprung from Egyptian slavery, that congregation could have felt good about approaching God on that mountain, but they were sore afraid, terrified, and rightly so, because they carried their sins with them. Jesus carries our sins to the cross, church. We are removed from our sins. We can come into the presence of God. We can be near Him. We can serve Him. Serve in His name. Get things right about Him. What an unimagined opportunity we have. Would you pray with me? God, help us repent. Which is to be sorry and stop doing from any effort we might make to try to supplement the work of Your glorious Son and our Lord. Help us to preach, believe, and serve the fact of Christ alone as a people who know there could be no possibility of salvation for anyone by any other name given among men. I pray that if there's some here who hold Jesus in the corner of their mind like a glimpsing figment of their imagination that you would, Spirit, incline them to see Jesus as central to to it all. He's the point of all the Scriptures. He's the point of the offerings, the tabernacle, the exodus, the provision of bread in the wilderness, the baptism, the inheritance. Help us to repent of thinking less of Jesus our Lord than is true of Jesus our Lord. We confess here afresh that we come with less than the little drummer boy had to bring. We come as sinners needing all the help and we thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ to give it. May God be glorified in Jesus Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.